millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As the wearing of masks in the UK is set to become a personal choice, can we learn the merit of a more cautious approach and save ourselves from a dreaded fourth wave? Joining us in studio to discuss Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne and GP Dr Knut Moo. The Digital Green Cert is on its way and has, offered, has it offered any clarity when it comes to booking a foreign holiday? And later, the Climate Action Plan committed to a goal of more than 900,000 electric vehicles on our roads by 2030, but it seems we're well off our targets. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. And by the way, if you're tuned in now expecting to see Love Island at its usual time, don't worry about it. Love Island will be here at the later time of 10 o'clock tonight, directly after this, The Tonight Show. First, let's go to the United Kingdom, where daily COVID infections have passed 32,000 for the first time since January, with another 33 deaths reported as they record their highest number of cases since January 19th. We're joined via Skype by Dr. Christine Tate Burkard, infection control expert from the University of Edinburgh. Christine, how worrying are these figures to you? They are medium worrying, I'd say. Uh, generally, we see that the case numbers definitely don't relate anymore to the hospitalization numbers as directly as they used to. And more importantly, they don't relate as closely to the numbers of people who have to stay longer in hospital or even are admitted to ICU. So the link between cases and hospitalization has clearly been weakened strongly. And that means we can now start to look forward to how we start to live with this virus. You say weak and strongly, but Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister in the House of Commons today, in justifying the opening up of society, said that the science says the link has been broken. Is he, in the way that Boris Johnson can do, exaggerating or even lying? If it would be broken, we wouldn't see anyone in hospital anymore, uh, really. But obviously, we still see cases that result in hospitalisation. So the link is not completely broken, but vaccination does weaken this link. We're also seeing very high case numbers, by the way, at the moment, because we are tracking more people by the test and protect or the test and trace uh, system, as it's called in England, uh, compared to the random uh, testing numbers. So they are a little bit higher than um, we, or they would be a bit lower compared to the January numbers if we would trace as many people as we did in January. Now, of course, one of the things which is becoming uh, voluntary from now on is the wearing of face masks. Is that a big risk to be taking a present or would you encourage people to continue, even if vaccinated, to wear the masks? 
Well, at the moment, we are still waiting to get the last of the population vaccinated, especially young people will only get offered their vaccine just now. And we're expecting all people who want to get the vaccine to be offered that by the 19th of July. And that means for the vaccine to take action in those young people, it will still take another two to three weeks. So yes, um, getting rid of face masks or the, the but the mandatory wearing of face masks is a big risk for young people who have not been vaccinated. And it's a little bit of a break of the social contract here. We told young people that they can get vaccinated last, but we basically would protect them until such time. Now we're opening up with, without waiting for them to be protected. Of course, the voluntary uh, wearing of face masks is still guided uh, by guidelines to actually wear face masks in crowded places, in high-risk places. Um, when we look at other nations, such as Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, it's much more likely that face masks will stay mandatory until the last of the population are properly protected by at least a single dose of the vaccine, which is probably more likely going to be towards August. But when we look at crowded places, if we look at the likes of Wimbledon for the tennis or Wembley for the football, you don't see an awful lot of people wearing masks, even though there's 60,000 people in Wembley this evening. Is there a sense of, OK, maybe there's a lot of impatience about getting back to normal, but is there also a sense maybe of denial as to the dangers that still exist? Well, with these big events such as Wimbledon and Wembley or the Euros, we actually have testing, at least lateral flow testing that people have to bring to the event or a double vaccination certificate. That does help mitigate the risk. Obviously, these are also outdoor events which mitigate the risks again. And test events like these have shown us already that that indeed decreases the risk of contracting the virus. Of course, on the flip side, we have seen the Scotland fans going down to England and actually celebrating in, in London, uh, catching the virus in those very, very close quarters of hugging and celebrating um, the equaliser against England. So it's not a non-risk, but the risk has decreased. We, we cannot deny that. However, at the moment, for anyone who's not double vaccinated yet, I would still urge them to be very cautious. You don't want to don't to catch the virus right now. It's too close to the end to actually catch it. And for everyone who's double vaccinated, you can still uh, transmit the virus. So take care for another few months or another month at least to protect everyone around you. Dr. Christine Tate-Burkhardt, thank you very much for joining us from Scotland this evening. We're joined now by Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne and also by GP Dr. Knute Moe. If I can start with you, Malcolm, you know, maybe they've gone a little bit too extreme in opening up, but is there a balance to be struck is against our excess and abundance of caution, perhaps? Well, if, if you look at our record as a result of the abundance of caution, sadly, we have lost 5,000 lives uh, to COVID over the, the, the last year and a half. But for the size of our country, that's actually considerably less than a lot of other similar European countries. And, and if you uh, were to adopt the approach that we've seen in other countries, you know, the death rate in Ireland would probably be double that which we've seen. Um, so it is, it's a difficult balancing act. You know, how do we 
reopen hospitality, ensure that we're able and to travel. And they've reopened hospitality a long time ago in the UK. It's not they, something they're they, going to do they, now. They, it was the middle of May. They have. And what we want to do is we want to be able to open it safely. I mean, the government policy has been, and it was right from the start, very clear. Uh, the priority was about uh, maintaining our schools and getting them open and then slowly opening up other sectors uh, in society. And the key is that when we do open it, that we don't have to close them down again. The big concern at the moment is obviously around the Delta variant. There is a race that is going on between uh, ensuring that we have everybody double vaccinated. Um, Minister Donnelly assured me this evening, as indeed the HSE has assured us, that anybody who's waiting for their second AstraZeneca vaccine, and I know this is a concern to a number of older people, that process will be completed by the end of next week. We have now seen, uh, uh, you know, and we we're just talking about being able to open up the vaccine process to young people, that all of those between 18 and 34 now will, will be vaccinated over the next uh, over the next period. And yes, you know, maybe we are being a, a little bit cautious, but, but the, the record shows caution, we're doing well. Even last night at Wembley, it was full of Spanish and Italian fans. And remember how those countries, particularly Italy, was so badly affected by the deaths in the early stages of COVID-19. You would think that they would be very cautious nations. And there, the stadium was full of Spanish and Italian people last yeah, night I, who had travelled for the game. I accept that. And, and we're, you know, trialling a number uh, of uh, pilot events. We're extending the numbers who are allowed uh, into our stadium and in, into venues. Tiny by comparison. Uh, it, it, I, I accept it's tiny, but... You know, the point that we made is that we're going to, once we reopen, we're not going to look at closing down again. And I think some of the, 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 the other concerns we have, by the way, are that we don't see our health system being overrun. I mean, one of the concerns that we're hearing now from Scotland uh, is about, you know, capacity problems in a number of the hospitals uh, in, in Scotland. Two more hospitals today in Scotland indicated that they were at capacity. We don't want to see that happen. Yes, we want to see hospitality reopened. Yes, we want to see travel resume uh, from the 19th of July. Um, but we have to ensure that it's done in a safe way. Well, Knut, it was interesting that our first guest was saying that the link between the illness and hospitalizations has been dramatically weakened. How encouraging is that? It's quite encouraging, but I think that the worry we have uh, when we see the numbers increasing and the, the projections that the government um, were, were shown last week is that these numbers are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, as society opens up and doesn't reclose, there's very little we can do other than our personal behaviours, modify those to make sure we're doing the right things to avoid those numbers getting out of control. Because when those numbers get bigger, invariably there's going to be more vaccine present in the community and it's going to trickle through to those small numbers who might be unvaccinated. There will be uh, vaccines or illness that breaks the vaccine barrier, as it were. And so there will be inevitably, as is happening, happening in the UK and in Scotland, as Malcolm said, they're going to be increasing numbers. But, but isn't that likely to be most people who are not regarded as high risk, who are younger? They're the ones who are last to get vaccinated are at the least risk. And that means that you're going to have a very small number of hospitalizations. Does this not suggest that, again, all policy has been dictated by our fears of a health system that can't cope? 18 months into this, we still haven't got a health system fit for purpose. Well, there's a number of, of things there in terms of 18 to 30 year olds. They're at, they're at low risk, but they're not at no risk of, of having very serious consequences and not just hospitalisation, ICU or death, but long COVID. And I have a number of patients who have presented with, with severe symptoms, having clots in their lungs in otherwise completely healthy people. And a flu doesn't do this. So this is no ordinary illness to suggest that 18 to 30 year olds Because a lot can... of people are dismissive of the idea of long COVID. They don't believe that this is anything worse than a flu. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I, th I think you'll find that some people are 
quite dismissive of it, maybe if they're if it's a bit abstract for them, if they don't necessarily know somebody who's been affected by it, because there'll be a large po- amounts of the population who really don't have a connection who's been quite sick with COVID, who don't know anybody who's had COVID themselves. And, and so as a result, or somebody young as well saying, well, that only happens to old people. But like this is a disease that indiscriminately attacks people who are otherwise very fit and healthy. But how can the government give that message out without being accused of scaremongering? It's, it's, listen, that's, a, that's an issue for government in terms of general practice for the public health advice is what we follow. And, and in terms of the advice we give is do the basic things right. If you find yourself in a situation where you feel uncomfortable because there's too many people, you know, remove yourself from that situation. Try and stay outdoors where possible and, and practice the basic hygiene measures that have been in place. That hasn't changed. And that's what we can do at the moment until the vast majority of, pac- of the population are vaccinated and double vaccinated as well. And have observed that period after vaccination where they have the maximal protection offered by that vaccine. So a Johnson & Johnson vaccine will give you a, a jab in the arm now, but you're not considered fully protected by that from that vaccine for one month. So it's really important that those 18 to 34 year olds are, are bearing that in mind in their actions and not to let their guard down at this point. And what about the point that's been raised by Malcolm? He's promising that those who got the first shot of AstraZeneca uh, who are waiting for the second, and this is people in their 60s. It also includes some healthcare workers and also people who are in what used to be called category four and category seven with long-term illnesses, that they're still waiting. How important is it that maybe they should get something else at a later stage because of fears that the AstraZeneca in itself might not be enough? Well, I think that still has to be looked at in terms of the um, the booster program. And I know that's even been looked at in the UK. And I think that's something we'll probably be taking a lead or uh, from the UK in time, that a booster program is definitely something that's going to be looked at from from my understanding of it at the very least. Um, I think the, the evidence is that the AstraZeneca vaccine, when given the two doses, provides very good protection from hospitalisation and death. So people should be um, absolutely reassured by its efficacy. But the longer term efficacy and of all the vaccines, potentially as they more and change, you know, uh, like we get a flu jab booster each year, we're probably going to have to get some sort of booster. But just how that programme looks remains to be seen as of yet. But Malcolm, there are still people getting worried that the rest of the year is not going to return to normal as we had expected. And one thing I know you're personally interested in, the Dublin City Marathon for the second year running has been cancelled. Surely by the time we get towards the end of October, we have everybody vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated, adults, possibly even teenagers. So why not have an event like that then? I, well, I, I, I agree with you, Matt. I would like to see the Dublin City Marathon uh, run again in, in October. I've, I've run them all since 2007. Uh, so it is disappointing that a major outdoor event like that, and as you say, by October, we should see everybody, uh, or every adult who wants double vaccinated. Um, the organisers of the Double City Marathon have always put health and safety first of, of, of competitors. Uh, I spoke with uh, Minister for Sport, Jack Chambers, this evening. He wasn't aware of the decision prior to it being announced. So he and I are willing to kind of talk with the organisers to see if there is a way that we can look at, at organising a major outdoor sports event uh, uh, like that. I think, you know, part of what we've been talking about is the vaccination bonus, that we, we, we end up getting people who once they have the double vaccination, that it does allow us the freedom to do things. Uh, it is right that we, you know, we are going to have to look at a booster program uh, and that is being considered, uh, you know, uh, there, there, there are a lot of things happening within the health service, both the booster program, plus also addressing all of those issues that because of COVID, uh, you know, elective surgery where there have been delays, that all has to be addressed in, in the autumn as well. 
but certainly I think it would it would signal very clearly that we are returning to some level of normality if a big outdoor event uh, properly organized and supported like the Dublin City Marathon um, could could resume. I think you know government policy has has been that once we reopen, we keep it open. And I, I think the approach has been correct. And we've been saying that to those in travel and hospitality as well. That's what we want to do. Well, one of the things that Malcolm mentioned as government policy was the getting the schools back, as happened earlier in the year. We're joined now by Anne Piggott, president of the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland, because there are people still wondering about issues like ventilation when the schools return in September. Did you learn enough, do you, do you think, in the months prior to the summer holidays to make you confident that everything can go back to normal in September on the return of schools? Uh, good evening, Matt. Uh, I suppose it, it depends on how you define normal. And at this stage, normal is sanitising hands, wearing masks, separating out desks. And that's the normal we expect to return to. Now, we have good news in that air monitors are going to be provided for schools and will be sent to schools and should be in place by September. So that should even improve the situation compared to what it was before the summer holidays. It would probably also be a relief to all teachers that they should be vaccinated by the time they return. But do you think would they like to see their students, certainly the Leaving Cert students, but perhaps even younger ones, vaccinated as well? Well, I think the way the rollout is going at the moment is quite impressive in that we do expect that all teachers will be vaccinated by the return to school and everybody in their 20s. But also now, if 18-year-olds can go to chemists and get a one-shot vaccine, that will cover a lot of our Leaving Cert students. 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds who are in our classroom um, will be vaccinated. And that also is a positive move for us. So everything is positive as you see it for the return. Even the Delta variant, is that of any way of concern to you? Yes, that is a concern. And it's not just Delta, because um, I was counting up the different types of variants. And as far as I can see in relation to Greek letters, we've gone from Alpha as far as Lambda this evening. So that's actually 11 variants. And each of those can mutate and have further relations of, um, of mutations. So we are we are worried that um, there were some reports in the UK, perhaps, that people with double doses are still catching COVID. Now, it was consoling to me tonight, listening to your guests in studio and um, saying that people with double doses are quite safe. So really, if people with double doses are safe, if the mitigation measures are in place, if we do have air monitors, September does look far more promising than last year's school year was at the beginning. That's good news, Anne Pickett. Thank you very much for being with us. Knut, can I go back to you in relation to the issue of ventilation? Has there been enough emphasis placed on adequate ventilation, not just in schools, but for hospitality in particular, if it's to be reopened? I think it's really key that um, that we try and simulate being outdoors as much as possible. And I think a lot of uh, Irish venues may not have traditionally been air conditioned or, or had a, um, a great ventilation because there simply wasn't a need um, with our climate that we have here. But what we know is that if air keeps moving, we do know that the virus uh, will stay still if the uh, if the air is stagnant. And so it will stay in the air. Whereas if there's air moving, studies have been done to show that airflow will, will disperse the virus um, and stop it from accumulating and make 
make it much, much less likely to accumulate. So, so does that mean that machines are going to have to be put into all sorts of establishments and schools to actually allow for that? Well, whether it's machines, and I know there's an awful lot of um, options out there for people who choose to do that, and great to hear that some uh, air monitoring systems will be in schools, because I think there is an emphasis, particularly on academic in institutions where people will be every single day, uh, you know, in, in large classrooms at times, that, that those ventilation options may not, they might be in closed rooms in lecture theatres, so they would have to look at some other ventilation. And a lot of office blocks don't have open windows either. So aren't those companies going to be under pressure to do something to safeguard the health and safety of their employees? Well, I think that's for, I suppose, public health to, to comment on exact policy in terms of how those those measures and if there's standards to be applied um, for an office space to, to go into. And, and, and that's, I think, more government and public health to to, uh, to comment on. But in terms of the basic things is staying ventilated, making sure that you're not, uh, from a personal point of view, in an office environment where you don't feel like you have adequate ventilation um, to, to, to work safely, uh, that then that's something that an employee should perhaps raise with their employer so as well. Malcolm, does this mean though there's going to have to be a change of emphasis in the public health advice, which seems to have all been about maintaining distance from everybody, not shaking hands, being careful about the surfaces and desks and whatever, when actually the real issue is, is the circulation of air? Well, I, it, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I think it's still going to be a case of that we're all going to still have to exercise personal responsibility and watch, you know, ensure that surfaces are clean and, you know, socially distance in particular circumstances. And as right, significant amounts of money have been spent on schools, allowing them to adapt. Uh, and in terms of the, the air monitors, that will allow uh, for the issues of ventilation to be monitored within schools. I, I'm quite struck that in, in Belgium, uh, in order for their hospitality sector uh, to, in, to reopen, uh, all of their um, bars and restaurants had to introduce carbon dioxide monitors, which at a cost of about 60 to 70 euro for each of the premises, those monitors were put in place. Uh, if it got to a particular level, uh, then the owner of the premises would have to take action. And if it breached a particular level, they were then in, in breach of the law. Um, so part of the, the emphasis will obviously be placed on the businesses and so on. But Would, but you, also would you think that should be done in Ireland? I, I, I think so. I think we've got to look at how we can support um, our hospitality sector, which has suffered enormously, to reopen safely. And I think we've got to learn you know, from what other countries have done right and what what the, what they have done uh, what they have done wrongly, uh, and certainly the the carbon dioxide monitoring systems that that operate in Belgium that seems to operate uh, reasonably well. Uh, I, you know, the the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health has met obviously with the hospitality sector to look at uh, you know what ways we can safely reopen. Uh, we are going to be seeing the digital COVID certs being rolled out to everyone. And we will else. be talking about those in the next yeah, section. But but. Part of the question for that is about the digital COVID search, not just being able to use it for travel, but whether they should be considered using in, well, in we some get parts back of to that. There's one other thing I want to ask you about in this section, though, and that's the revelations today about the new National Children's Hospital. That there was a four-month shutdown because of COVID, but it's now running 14 months behind schedule before it will actually be completed. And it seems to be a mystery as to how much it's actually going to cost. We're not being told, but it looks like at the very minimum now, it'll be at least 1.7 billion, which is a billion more than it was originally scheduled to be. So who's really at fault here? Is this the fault of all the contractors and the builders, or is it also the fault of the state for putting bad contracts in place? I, I, I think there are questions for the state. I mean, th there is a very serious concern around the rising cost of construction and the cost of materials. Uh, and, and this hasn't just been raised in the context of the National Children's Hospital, it's been raised 
in the context of other state but buildings. But costs were out of control ever before but that became I, an issue. I, I, I entirely agree. And I think there, there, there is a very serious question around how with some of our major public projects, uh, we allow them uh, and, you know, the project managers and so on in, in, in place uh, to allow them to run to su- such an extent over budget. There's always when, when, you know, anyone in construction will tell you there, you know, there have to be certain margins and clauses and so on. Um, but the scale that we're looking at in terms of the National Children's Hospital, I, I, I just cannot figure out uh, how, how that's allowed to continue okay. to happen. Our thanks to Dr. Knute Moe for being with us. Malcolm Byrne is staying with us because after the break, we will be talking more about the digital green search, which brings us one step closer to international travel. But what hurdles still stand in the way? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back. Fina Falls, Malcolm Byrne is still with us. We're also joined on the panel by consumer journalist Sinead Ryan. But first, we're joined by Jackie Spain of JK Travel in Tullamore. Jackie, thank you very much for joining us. Is there any sign of an upturn in business, of people becoming more confident about booking foreign holidays from the 19th of July onwards? Um, There certainly does seem to be some confidence there. People are, we're certainly seeing a lot of inquiries. Um, There's a little bit of uncertainty regarding PCR testing and the rollout of the green certs for the the, the 19th of July. But there are inquiries. Um, Yes, there's definitely, I mean, the agents are open. We're all starting to open. We're here to advise and we're here to help everyone. We're delighted to say that the the opening on the the 19th uh, is, is going ahead and that the certs will be delivered on the 12th. But what about people who might be thinking of travelling with children? Are they reluctant or are they confused as to what they might have to do? They are, certainly, um, because there's a little bit of mixed messaging going from uh, government regarding um, the, the requirements for travel. And insofar as, given that it was a uniform, uh, given that it was a joint effort, amongst the European communities, they should have had a more uniform approach to the rollout. Um, For example, the requirement for entry into, um, shall we say, Italy is over the age of two. Anybody over the age of two is required to have a PCR test. Whereas in the likes of Portugal, up to 18 years of age can travel with two parents, providing the, the two parents are vaccinated they can travel along with them without a PCR test. 
That's interesting. For you, I mean, it's been a tough 18 months, I can imagine. It's been difficult for travel agents in recent years anyway, but does this reopening give you a chance to salvage and continue your business? We're really hoping so. We're, and that's why we're encouraging people to, to come into their travel agents and to speak to us about any of their travel arrangements. We're here to help. We've had an absolutely terrible year, as I'm sure everybody can imagine. We are the worst affected industry. We are literally the pub with no beer. We can't sell, where we are open, anything that we're selling is really very much for next year, which doesn't bring us any income until next year. The way the travel industry works is that when people book a holiday today, for example, for next year, we don't realize any monies from that until around March next year. Okay, thank you very much, Jackie, for joining us here in The Tonight Show. Sinead Ryan, you're hearing all sorts of worries and concerns from people as to what they can and cannot do. One of the big ones that I'm hearing is that you go away in your holidays, you're either vaccinated or you have the PCR test for the children, comes out the way you want it, you go away and suddenly you can't fly back. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do until such time as you're allowed to fly back? Uh, listen, it, it is uneven at best. Um, and uh, because the different measures aren't being applied in the same way across different member states, um, not least of Ireland, we're the biggest outlier of all because we're not even introducing it until the 19th. Uh, it would leave families very reluctant to spend a lot of money, book holidays when any one of a number of things could go wrong. Uh, so apart from it being more expensive because you have to get PCR tests for all your children to get back into the country. So like a family of, of um, four children, that's 760 quid to get back home. Uh, never mind picking the countries that don't require the PCR test. And as the travel agent was saying there, I mean, place like Spain, place like Greece, they are so desperate for tourism. They've kind of said, don't worry about any of that. We'll do, you, we'll do a 15 minute swab when you get here, you'll be fine. Uh, but that's not the issue because of this emergency break that the EU has, has brought in out of necessity and says that at any time, if any country either has a sudden spike or kind of has a, has a big problem with COVID, they can, they can put on the brakes and change the rules. Uh, and that just leaves families in a very uncertain position. And what about if you are booked to go out and you've paid for your flights and you've paid for your accommodation and two days before you go, you discover one of the party has a positive PCR test. Indeed. Well, here we are, 2020 all over again, because we found that from airlines, if the plane is going in the air and you're not on it, you don't get a refund, you don't get your money back. If you cancel in good time, both Ryanair and Aer Lingus are allowing you to transfer that flight, uh, Aer Lingus very generously, to any time in the next number of years uh, and get your money back. But they won't let you do that at the airport if you have just how, swabbed. How far possibly. in advance will you have to give notice um, of not using the flight? Yeah, well, uh, Ryanair is up to seven days. So you're only taking your PCR 72 hours in advance. I mean, it can't be any earlier than that. Um, Aer Lingus, I'm not sure about their current policy because they have been changing it around the time. So I think they have a kind of, it's in hours but rather What about than accommodation? Days. If you have booked even privately or if you've gone through a travel mm. agent, if you suddenly ring up and say, we can't come because mm. we haven't got, everyone hasn't passed the test, will they refund the money or roll it over? It is difficult. An awful lot of people are availing of um, the likes of booking.com where you pay an extra amount of money, like an insurance, so that if you have to cancel maybe right up to 24 hours in advance, that they'll allow you do that. Now, you may take a hit on some of the money you've paid. Some hotels may say, look, no problem at all. We'll transfer it. We'll give you a voucher. You can use it at another time. 
But there's no, there's no guaranteed way that that's going to happen. So people have to do an awful lot more homework. And does that mean that perhaps, I know a lot of people are do, doing DIY holidays or doing it on the internet, mm. that this might be a time to use a travel agent who is yes. bonded to give yourself more of an insurance policy? Indeed. And I was in a travel agent myself during the week uh, to find out what was available and, and what their policies were on that. Uh, and for the most part, like there is no problem. They're being very good about transferring holidays and moving holidays. God knows they're used to it at this stage. The problem is just as you said, you, you're two days out of your holiday, a family of six booked and one child tests positive. I, I'd be fairly sure I'd be sh shunting that off to a grandparent, something that maybe that's just me. Um, but what are you going to do? And even worse, you're abroad and that happens because you have to get them tested before you can come back into Ireland. We have the, one of the strictest set of regulations around this. Malcolm, there's also some confusion between the Department of Transport and the Department of Health as to at what age a child needs to get a PCR test done. Yes, so it's it's going to be very clear that there will be a an advertising or marketing campaign outlining how uh, the certificate is going to operate. It is intended that it will come in here on the 19th of July uh, and it will mean that it, the the new digital COVID certificate will be available in both a paper or if you want in a, a digital format. But it's going to be available to somebody who's either been vaccinated against COVID, they've received a negative test result, as you say, within, within 72 hours, or they've recovered from COVID within the last uh, six months. It's very clear because there's, there's a number of issues. And I know, for instance, my colleague Barry Andrews, MEP, has been raising this as well around ensuring that there is EU-UK interoperability, which is going to be crucial for, um, for this island. But it, it's essential uh, that there is clarity for the travel industry, but as, as you say, Sinead, for those who want to travel by the 19th. Uh, what I've been told is that the scheme will be ready in Ireland for the uh, for the 19th and that over the, the run-up period that there will be an advertising campaign to explain but, I, I sorry, do... but the Tonish Talia Farakar has spoken about teething problems. What sort of teething problems could there be when we are going to be nearly three weeks behind the rest of Europe? I, I accept, and Sinead was right where she said, you know, one of the difficulties is, is that the rules are being applied differently uh, in different EU member states. Uh, if you go onto the Department of Foreign Affairs website, um, you will see, you know, if you are traveling to Greece, this is what you need to know about traveling to Greece. And then if you're coming from Greece to Ireland and similarly for other member states. So there is a bit of homework to be done on, on the parts of... But, but does the government really want people traveling abroad? I mean, I know it brings financial benefits to the airports and airlines, but we still have the chief medical officer saying he does not believe that people should not be engaging in non-essential travel. A holiday to Spain or Portugal or Italy or whatever would seem to be the very definition of non-essential travel. Well, I mean, we've made very clear on when we get people to a situation where they have, you know, double vaccination, uh, that, and, you know, as we told you about earlier, it's not going to be a, a complete guarantee. Uh, we are going to be living with this virus for, for quite a period, but we have to try to look at some way where we can resume a normality. Uh, we are an island. We require travel, and not just in terms of, by the way, for tourists to be leaving Ireland and traveling to other European countries, but obviously for us to be able to attract European visitors and indeed those from North, North America. We've got to get back to ensuring that we can allow that. And particularly where somebody has their double vaccination, they're carrying their vac cert, other European citizens are allowed to do it. We have been slow and cautious, but we, we are going to proceed with it. There can be a lot of money involved for many families, mm. but Sinead, is it worth the gamble of trying to get that foreign holiday? Do, do you know what? I, I think it is worth it if um, you are a couple and you have both been 
double vaccinated plus two weeks. Okay, so you're going to get your cert dropping uh, by email, hopefully. And uh, if you've nothing else to, to worry about, you're otherwise healthy, you're going to a safe EU country, I think go for it. Now, but if what you, about the children? If you've got a bunch of kids, it, it really does have to make you think twice. Uh, not only for now, but I mean, it, it's but, not really for the 19th of July. We don't know what's going to happen in for the October bank, for the um, midterm break, for Christmas, for Easter, but, but for next know, summer. Isn't it also the case, though, that if you did decide you wanted to stay at home, nearly everything that's affordable is booked up at this stage. Yeah. And you may not, with those very children that you can't bring overseas, be able to go into pubs and restaurants with them in Ireland yeah. because they won't be vaccinated. No, it is. And I mean, I think that was nearly the bigger blow in one sense, because even people who'd written off foreign holidays this year said, look, I'm not going to bother. I'll take a staycation. And now they find maybe taking a house somewhere because it's nice and safe rather than a, a hotel. Uh, they can't eat indoors uh, in pubs and restaurants. I, I think that's a huge yeah, blow, Martin, especially when you see the weather. This is a major issue because you're talking about using these digital certs when they go to people for use in hospitality. But that's not going to enable them, or is it, to bring their children in with them? Well, this is one of the issues that's under consideration and there's a as you know there's discussions going on with the hotels federation the vintners the restaurant association and government about about trying to do it um we want to get back to a situation whereby people can go uh and enjoy their their summers in ireland whether it's indoors or outdoors but we've got to be able to do it uh, to, to do it safely you see on the basis that we have decided as far as i know we're not going to vaccinate young children either now or in the foreseeable future, like we have to get to the point where we're either turning a blind eye to it and just saying, OK, we're sucking up the, the risk that this might bring uh, or be have a have another plan. And in the absence of vaccination, there isn't another plan. So it's really then about dates. You know, I mean, it, it, we're not going to be vaccinating two year olds, five year olds, 10 year olds at all. But when, when we move to and, and, and I agree with you, but I think when we move to a situation whereby we have essentially all of the adult population vaccinated. Mm. I think we're into a very different situation there. It's not without, I mean, it, it's not without risk not having children uh, vaccinated, but the, the risk is comparatively lower in comparison to other age. And, and this is where we're moving as a country. I, I would certainly hope that we're going to be in a situation that at some stage over the next two months, we're going to be at where, you know, more or less all of the adult population, because the vaccination scheme, it's been incredible. All of the adult population is going to be vaccinated and we won't be needing to have and, these. Shane, just one last thing that strikes me. Imagine you bring your children on holidays in August and unfortunately they do contract the illness. Yeah. How do they go back to school in September? But you see, I think there, there was, now call me cynical, but I think there was a whole plan around the dates that all this was were, were agreed because the 19th of July bring, bring you in means that your child has to come back and if they are pinged, they have to isolate for two weeks. That brings you up to the 10th of August. So you have to go, not before the 19th of July, but you have to be back before the 10th of August or it wasn't going to work anyway. Nah. So we bring it in, but we don't want you to use I, it. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that's a, a conspiracy theory, maybe a little bit too far, Sinead. All right, yeah. we leave it there with that. Our thanks to Sinead Ryan. Malcolm Byrne is staying with us because after the break from one global crisis to another, efforts to reduce carbon emissions with electric vehicle quotas fall short.
Welcome back. Well, Fianna Fáil's Malcolm Byrne has stayed with us. We're also joined by motoring and transport journalist Geraldine Herbert. Geraldine, the heat waves around the world are giving an awful lot of attention at the moment to climate change and the things that we have to do to try and make the planet a safer, more habitable place for generations to come. The electric car has been posited as one of the things we have to do instead of the internal combustion engine. But are Irish people really embracing that? Are they buying these cars in anything like the numbers of other countries? Um, I don't think we're buying them quite in the numbers that other countries are, but we certainly see a move, um, Matt, in the last, particularly in the last year or so, towards alternatives to petrol and diesel. Now, while electric cars still make up quite a small amount of the market share for new cars, in fact, I think it's about 6.8 or 6.78 at the moment. Um, what we do see is if you see the, if you look at the combined market share of, say, regular hybrids, plug-in hybrids and electric cars, that's now making up 30%. So that's one in three buyers going into a dealership are no longer opting for petrol and diesel. Despite so, the fact that they're often more expensive than the petrol and diesel options. Yeah, so I think this is down to two things. Obviously, we see a much more... Um you know, I'm, I'm much more aware um, buying a motorist that is buying at the moment, but also just the sheer range that's out there. That wasn't there. When the government set their target for 1 million electric cars in 2019, even in those two years, we've seen a huge number of electric cars, particularly electric and plug-in hybrids come on, the, on stream. So there's just more choice out there and there's more choice at different price points. So while price is still an issue, it's not quite the issue it has been in the past. But it's still only 30,000 units or so, isn't it, of the pure electric cars? Yeah, that is the problem. But you see, the thing is, Matt, you can't look at the numbers now and predict what's going to happen in 2030 just in terms of what's selling now. The biggest issue at the moment is still price. Now, price is an issue in the sense that they're not really, ex that electric cars are not that really, really expensive, but they are expensive when you compare them to what you can get in petrol and diesel. So, for example, if you spend 27,000 on an electric car, you might buy the exact same car, but with a petrol engine for 19 or 20,000 and maybe the diesel will one for 23. Will you make up the difference over the years in what you don't spend on yeah, petrol and diesel? You will no doubt because the running costs and just the overall cost of ownership is so much cheaper but that doesn't it, that isn't what people see what they see when they walk into a dealership is that sticker price is so much higher now we know that if that if that was removed and they were the same price buyers would switch automatically because when you factor in the running cost it just wouldn't make sense not to go ev and you see that in norway in norway the government have artificially closed that gap because they heavily penalize petrol and diesel and they very generously subsidize electric cars and 70 percent of new cars matt that are bought are electric and we will have a exactly the same situation, but we have to wait for two to three but years. On, there's still a couple of things that people, I think, are reluctant to go with electric cars for. One is the range that they will actually drive for, how far you'll be able to get one, that if you decide you want to go to the other side of the country, that the car won't take you all the way there. And the second point, which is related to that, is that there simply aren't enough charging points available for people. It's one thing putting in something outside your own front door, if that's possible, and it's not for everybody, but then you drive off down the country, where are you going to recharge the car? Okay, two things there. Most people overestimate what they drive. The average person, I think, um, from the last CSO survey does about 300 kilometres a week, and that's seven days a week. So that's your five days a week going to the office, which most people are not doing at the moment. So most electric cars that are for sale at the moment do anything from 400 upwards. It's definitely 300. So you'll do your full week's driving on, you know, on a that. single charge. Yeah. Now, the fact about going down the country, how often do you do that? You're surely not going to But make... you will want to do it you sometimes. Will want you're to, going yes. to want a staycation holiday if you can 
around corners. Yeah, please. but you don't choose your car based on your staycation needs. So let's be honest, you know, looking at that realistically. But the second thing is, there's no doubt about it. We need a, we need an accessible and reliable network because people, a charging network, people need to have the confidence and the reassurance that, you know, if they do go down the country on that one staycation, that they will be able to charge on the way. So there's no doubt about that. That needs improving. Malcolm, it seems that the public is way ahead of the government in relation to this, isn't it? That yeah. they're buying the things despite the fact that the facilities aren't necessarily being put in place I, to help I, them. I think so, Matt, but I, I always find it funny about people going down the country. You know, there are a lot of us who actually live outside of Dublin uh, and who travel and... Uh, I, I know when people from Cork go to West Cork as well. Yeah, you know, exactly. Thing, well, you know? well I, I know, for instance, um, Councillor Albert Dolan, who's a young councillor in Galway, uh, has been arguing a lot of the time for additional charging points around County Galway so that it makes it easier for electric vehicles to travel there. There was a major announcement yesterday around charging infrastructure partnership mm -hmm. between the ESB uh, and the government, including a new fast charging centre in Monaster Evan. So we do need all of those charge points rolled out throughout the country. I, I certainly agree the price point is an issue, uh, but I think in order for us to be able to address the climate change issue, it's not just about the transition to electric vehicles. It's also about improving public transport. Uh, it's about you know more livable cities. Uh, and uh, I, I think what's... what's well, we're not going to divert into public transport tonight, but when you talk about livable cities, the problem for many people is, is that if they don't have off-street parking, then they're going to find it very difficult to actually charge an electric car. And many new apartment blocks, which are supposedly being built for the modern city, they're finding that the management companies are refusing to put in the charging posts, claiming for some reason that they may be some sort of fire hazard. Well, well where uh, uh, the issue can, is, is and can be addressed at the moment is that a lot of local authorities are currently considering their city and county development plans. And part of it can be built into uh, ensuring that there's sufficient number of charge points. Uh, I know, for instance, in Wexford County Council, in my own case, where planning permission is being granted for larger estates, that part of the granted planning permission is that there's a certain amount of electric charging points, uh, you know, within within uh, within the area. It's going to be one of the uh, the challenges. I, I I do agree. I mean, I, I I think that people will, if they see that the price is right, because running an electric car is far far cheaper, obviously, than than diesel or petrol in the long run. The price point is there. I think I think. And Geraldine, is all this going to have to be done because effectively the EU will force it upon us by incentivising or punishing the car manufacturers for not making electric cars if they continue to make petrol and diesel cars? Yeah, and I think that's why we see car makers are actually making the choice themselves. More and more manufacturers have announced, especially in the last 18 months, their own deadlines for ending petrol and diesel. You know, Volvo, Ford, they're no longer going to produce petrol and diesel cars. And even now we see the new cars that are coming in, there's less and less options for petrol and diesel. So I think what people don't actually grasp is how quick this is actually going to happen. So if you've bought a new car this year, the chances are by the time you go to trade it in in three or four years, the car that you have bought now simply won't be available. So but that, but that also impact on its value if you're trying to trade it in? It will, but there'll always be a second-hand market. Remember, the new car market is a fraction of the cars that actually exchange hands in Ireland, so there'll still be... But, but will there come a day when you won't be allowed to drive a petrol or diesel car on our roads? Yeah, but I think they just won't be around before that'll actually happen. I mean, you know, the government are talking about phasing out, obviously, the sale the, the sale of, of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030 and then NCTs at a certain time later. But I actually think it's going to happen much, much faster than that because, as you say, the EU is forcing car makers to just, you know, produce more electric cars anyway. And that's where the industry is going. And they're no longer putting research and development into petrol and diesel anyway. That has ended. And, and don't discount the fact, I mean, that we could be seeing hydrogen-powered cars by 2030. That I technology think that's a long way 
off. But anyway. <laughs> but I, I, I'm not necessarily, you, you think it's a long way off. If you look at the pace of change of technology, stuff that we thought that, you know, would not mm. have been able to happen 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and I think it's how we adapt and how we, we use that. I mean, I'm conscious in, in, you know, in Sweden that they now use roads to effectively electrically, but, you know, the test final one, Are we making too big an assumption about everybody using cars? Could it be in the future that fewer people will use cars, that there will be a greater reliance on public transport? I think absolutely that's what's going to happen. I mean, we're going to see a dramatic change in car ownership. But the problem is, Matt, we have people moving out of cities due to our housing crisis. We're forcing people to make longer journeys all the time. That just instills car dependency. So until we, we merge housing and transport, we're going to have a car dependency uh, problem. But if, if, and as you know, the government has a very strong remote working strategy. And I think as a result of the pandemic, a lot of people have reassessed you know, issues around quality of life. And I think if, if we support sustainable communities down the country, as people tend to refer to them, uh, then, you know, it won't require people to have to travel long distances. And I, I'm very conscious, I can see it in Gorey, where I'm from regularly. Okay. A lot more people are living are living at home rather than having to commute. We have to leave it there. Our thanks to Fianna Falls, Malcolm Byrne and Geraldine Herbert for joining us on the programme. I'll be back on radio tomorrow and back here tomorrow night at the usual time at 10 o'clock. Don't forget that tonight show is available as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. Thanks for watching. There's a thing called Love Island coming up that you may have wanted over the last hour, but it's coming up in the next hour. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.